welcome to the Boundless Book Club. You are here with Annabelle, Andrea, and me, Ahlam. This is our fourth episode. We're missing the office at the Literature Foundation very much uh, at this point. So recording this podcast is a great way for us to get together and talk about books. We remain bound to our homes, but that doesn't mean we're stuck in a holding pattern. This is a great time to dig into some books that helps us make sense of ourselves and the world around us. Today, we will be talking about self-help. I want to know before we get talking about the books, if you actually feel differently now about the topic, is yourself in need of more helping? I'm going to have to say no to that, Annabelle. <laughs> mm, I don't know. I think the act of picking up a book in itself is is kind of self-help in my head. It's like the time that you give to yourself and you're like, okay, this is just about me and I need this time. Because when you go into a book and you're just in another world or in another headspace than the people around you in your house, that's like a, a kind of meditation on its own. And it's like an escape that you give your mind, which for me is self-help in the act in itself. How true is that? That's funny you mention that because that's basically entirely one of the points of one of my books. I'm just going to screw that piece of paper up and throw it away. (laughs) (laughs) We're so in sync now after four episodes. We know exactly what each other are thinking. Cool. So I want to know what you guys chose because so many things could fall under self-help. First, I have to say I'm not massive self-help genre buyer, but I bought this book called How Women Rise. So Sally Helgeson wrote this with Marshall Goldsmith, who wrote another book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There, which is all about career progression. And in this book, they've identified 12 habits that particularly women have that hold you back. So the first one is reluctance to claim your achievements. So something's gone really well and you say, oh, didn't we do a great job and well done, everybody else? Yes, it was a team effort. (laughs) And you know what? Yeah. It is a team effort. It is great to do that, to acknowledge everybody else's effort. But you did something that was a really crucial part of making that happen. And you should probably own that a little bit and say, you know what? I'm really proud of what we've achieved. If you hadn't done this fantastic thing that you did and I hadn't got the right people into the room, none of this would have happened. We've done a great thing here. A lot of these things are linked, by the way. So there's another one that fits into this. The disease to please is number eight, which is about how we want to be liked. I mean, doesn't that fit in perfectly? You don't want to say I did this because everybody else in the team also contributed and you want them to like you and validate what you've done. So therefore you feel like you need to validate them even more. So nobody really gets credit because everybody is equally sort of in this blob of we've done a great thing. It's, it's sort of like in this beige space of being liked by everyone is sort of like being liked by no one. I mean, it's, you don't, there's nothing about that that stands out or is special. Yes, I've heard the advice to do it myself before, but anytime that I've tried it or I've heard someone else do it, my immediate reaction is that sounds a little arrogant. A long time ago, I worked in a company that was probably about 90% male. And it was very, very clear that men were very happy to claim any credit they could in that particular organization, not saying all men are like this. And, um, and then in an environment like that, if you're not comfortable saying, I have achieved something, you are not seen and you are completely forgotten. So I think the context makes a really big difference as well. If you are in our organization, I think a lot of people are very supportive and keen to recognize other people's efforts, 
which isn't the same in other places as well. We're also mostly women. Yeah, I've always had female bosses. I've never had a male boss and I don't know what that's even like. (laughs) I did. I had a, a male boss a while ago. So I was doing my job really well, got promoted, at which point my boss, who was male, said to me, he said, you know, you do a really great job when you do your job, but now you're going to have to do some other things too. And you need to be a little bit less you and a bit more me because you're a bit too nice. <laughs> and I thought, I do like being a nice person and helpful and giving other people a place to have opinions and so on. And then this is a completely different conversation, I guess. But in this world, we do need to also think about whether the models that we have for organizational development are the right models. Do we need to take up more space or can an organization flourish not using the traditional models for growth and recognition and and management? Um, The other points, number two, expecting others to spontaneously notice and reward your contributions. Number three, overvaluing expertise. This is massive, massive thing for me. I want to be the expert. Um, And I haven't seen so many male colleagues be quite as focused on knowing exactly what they're talking about before they talk about it. So you're saying they fake it till they make it? I'm saying that you don't necessarily need to be have a PhD in what you're talking about to be able to have a really valid and valuable opinion. Okay, so number four, just building rather than leveraging relationships. Uh, Number five, failing to enlist allies from day one. Number six, putting your job before your career. Your job before your career. Too short term rather than long term. Maybe it comes back to loyalty as well, being loyal to a specific job rather than thinking about long term, what is it that you want and what's best for your career personally? I think, yeah, I think also the the short term thing as well. I think you probably do all the tasks at hand really, really well, which means that you don't actually have the bandwidth to step back and think about what you could do better on a strategic level. Then we have the disease to please at number eight. Number nine is minimizing. And this is also a really interesting one, I think. They've done studies of people sitting around in groups at like conferences where they have the group discussion. If a woman comes in late, she will apologize and possibly grab a chair and try to sort of fit in at the back. A man comes in late and women who are already... Yeah, women who are already in the circle will then move their chair to the side, minimize themselves to make space, which, you know what, I think is a really nice thing to do. I think that's a really polite and friendly thing to do. And no matter what they say, I think a lot of the advice in here is great. I don't think that's something that we should change. I think we should ask men to do the same rather than us changing. That's the thing. In the in the in the in the case that if if it's mutual, then you continue doing those things, and that's okay. But if you're constantly, you know, on on the back foot because other people are taking your opportunities or taking up more space, then that's when it starts to become a problem. Uh, number ten is too much being too much. That's about bringing your emotions to work. Number eleven, ruminating, and number twelve is letting your radar distract you, which means that you are thinking widely rather than being focused so any of those resonate with you guys many (laughs) many do you have do you have any other books today 
the only thing I wanted to say after this, because I this was my highlight for self-help. The other thing I wanted to say is that I think if you want to improve your understanding of anything in the world, self-help books might not be enough. I think you need to read fiction and I will die on this hill. There's no other way to understand another person's perception and understand what they're going through than to actually be in their shoes and in their skin. I'll be joining you on that hill very shortly. Thank you. <laughs> Annabelle, what do you have? for us today. Okay, right. So I had to, I really struggled with this because I thought before we started the episode, I've got loads of self-help books that I can talk about that I have read at some point. I may not like them, but I've got them to talk about. And then I looked at my shelf and I went, no, you don't. You have nonfiction science books. That is what you read. You've been lying to yourself. <laughs> Me too. I had like three and I thought I was a big like nonfiction reader. But I, for in terms of self-help, I had like three and one was because the author was at the festival. So <laughs> Exactly. The one book I'm going to talk about is something I listened to on audiobook a while ago because quite frankly, I saw Mo Salah reading it after um, a failure. And I find the conversations about people who failed and picked themselves back up really interesting. And it's called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep, which I will replace with the word hoot because I like owls. And the <laughs> subtitle is A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life by Mark Manson. It's not like it's the be all and end all if you read this book or not, but I just, I think it reaffirmed a few things that I already felt. And I'll go back to the idea in a minute, but basically the book, as it says on the publisher guide, is a generation defining self-help guide um, where a superstar blogger cuts through the crap to show us how to stop trying to be positive all the time so that we can truly become better, happier people. One of my biggest bugbears in life is when people constantly encourage you to just be positive, be happy, be cheerful, cheer up, just stay positive as if you can just switch on positivity like a light switch. And sometimes I don't think that it's actually appropriate to be positive all the time. I think that we should be striving for realism, not constant, not you know, pessimism or optimism. There is a happy neutral medium. The book isn't just him blathering on about that same point. Um, it's backed by academic research um, and also well-timed poop jokes, which you know, help <laughs> make the reading fun. It says here, it's not about our ability to turn lemons into lemonade, but on learning to stomach lemons better. And I think that is far more helpful to a lot of people than just be cheerful positive you know what sometimes it works for people sometimes it doesn't and i think that this is far more accessible and that's why it sold so many copies but on the subject of self-help books in general the reason why you don't find many on my shelves and why i don't actually find myself a fan of them is because self-help is only as good as the self that's doing the helping and i can tell you to read xyz self-help books and there are so many business people who do the same thing oh this book changed my life it changed your life because it was right for you true but they are the trickiest books of all to recommend they fill bookshops left right and center a lot of people who buy them they're not actually going to help and that's the issue that I have with the genre I think it's um it's like any advice whether it's book or verbal advice it's it's whether you are ready to absorb it at that point and if you're not ready to hear it then it doesn't really matter if you have five books about it yeah 
True. And actually, I wanted to, I think that's, that's the perfect way to introduce this because one of the books that I want to talk about is Reasons to Stay Alive by, by Matt Hike. And a lot of times, especially with people who struggle with anxiety or depression, I think the one thing that people around them tend to do is to tell them to take it easy or try to be positive or try to be happy. And it doesn't help, especially in, in that mindset. I mean, it doesn't, in, in general, if you're not in a happy place, it's difficult to switch it on. But especially with people who struggle mentally in finding ways of doing that, where even waking up in the morning is a struggle, where the, the tiny tasks, which for everyone else is easy and, and sort of you don't think about it, to them is like a huge step to be taken. And I love, you know, that really opened my eye in terms of how to deal or, you know, for, for loved ones around the person uh, with anxiety or with depression, how to handle you know the conversations with them or how to deal with them in being careful with your language um, and understanding where they're coming from. So when a small task is really extremely difficult for them to take on, that's because that that's where they're coming from and understanding that that's not them being dramatic or sort of always uh, being difficult and things like that. So that really helped me view anxieties and, and depression in, in a different light. I know what I, what I said about self-help books and the self that's doing the helping, but I mean, I think a big part of the ones that become the most successful and the most helpful are written by people, especially in terms of mental health, who have gone through the same thing because mental health and struggling with that can be something that's very difficult to have a conversation with someone about if you're not ready to open up about it the only way that you're going to have that conversation is through a book so I think those are the self-help books that are probably the most helpful is the ones that have conversations you're not ready to have with a human being yet yeah that's true I have one more book to tell you guys about today a Monk's Guide to Happiness. So Gilang Tupton was actually at our festival uh, in February 2020, and he was a great speaker. What I like about Gilang Tupton is that he also has a different approach to sort of meditation. It's not about finding just complete emptiness and shutting your mind off. Uh, we actually posted a quote about him on the LitFest Instagram uh, this morning, which said, I think something along the lines of, it's not about shutting your mind, but it's about showing your thoughts who's boss. And it's right. And, and, and he gives us some practical uh, examples of how to do that. So he says, pick some really routine, easy acts that you do every day, like brushing your teeth, for example. You know you're going to do that every day. It's really mindless. And sort of use those moments as your meditation moment uh, and be really pre present in the act. And also he's someone who understands the pressures of the time that we live in and the hectic jobs that we have and the hectic lifestyles and demanding lifestyles that we have. And he kind of helps you find moments of meditation throughout that day, rather than sort of telling you lock yourself up for 10 days and don't talk to anyone. I really like that. I'm doing the 21 day uh, Deepak Chopra abundance challenge right now for meditation. So a friend invited me on a WhatsApp group and she said, would you like to join? I'm starting a WhatsApp group and it's like a group of people who meditate day by day and you sort of just write in the group to say uh, day one done, day two done. You can do it at any point of day, but the idea is that you're all sort of meditating on the same schedule. I'm, I don't really agree with all of the exercises. So there's a written exercise every day and then there's a guided audio meditation 
and it's only seven minutes so it's like doable it's not taking up too much of your time some of the writing exercises i find to be too like financial related or like monetary and i, I feel weird meditating on abundance of money but i like the idea of having uh, a discipline where you dedicate a certain few minutes whether it's seven to ten minutes of every single day to meditating or going within and thinking to yourself and putting your thoughts down what you're grateful for who are the people who give you positive energy who are the people who bring negativity to your life and just sort of making lists it's kind of like organizing the clutter in your head so this is like a mental Marie Kondo this sparks joy this no longer sparks yeah. joy yeah exactly <laughs> exactly if you guys want to do it i'm going to create a group and you can <laughs> you can do a 21 day does it use the word manifest at any point it does yeah multiple times <laughs> i'm i'm all right <laughs> <laughs> so yeah th those are my two books for today annabelle what's your last book okay because of the hill that you're going to die on andrea you know in honor this is the novel cure oh nice the best self-help book i can ever recommend is an a to z of literary remedies and it's a book for every ailment that you might possibly have and also reading ailments so there's an entire section that's devoted to i feel embarrassed by my bookshelf i can't find time to read i never finish any books etc 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 you can see the size of the font i'm just going to show you if you're watching this on video teeny tiny so many pages and it's not one that you have to read front to back obviously you dip in and out of it like you would like a cookbook almost but for literature <laughs> so i've just opened it randomly at a page here and this page is identity unsure of your reading and it basically says if you feel you have forgotten or perhaps that you have never known what sort of books are your <laughs> sort of books and as a result find yourself unable to choose what to read next we suggest that you keep a favorites shelf etc etc and some of them are about existential dread or you know caring for a loved one with a terminal illness like it, it's it's broad it's great honestly and it's a great gift to give people as well I'm ordering this immediately. Sorry, I, I thought I was done, but your book triggered another book that I that I discarded. And they never ended the podcast. <laughs> it's called The Conditions of Love by John Armstrong. And it's like a really, really short book. And it's a little philosophical book about love. And it draws on literature to explain situations. And at the end, like it at the end, it talks about mature love and then it has an example from a scene in a Tolstoy novel where this couple have fallen out of passionate love with each other and they're looking at each other growing old and then they find the tenderness of them together caring for a vegetable garden or something sparks something new and it's lovely so there you go that I love the cover too it's really beautiful and artsy that is it for this week. We would love to know what you think. Do you read self-help books or are there other books that you find help yourself? Let us know by emailing comms at emiratesliptest.com or you can send us a message on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and on YouTube. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Boundless Book Club, the self-help episode. Thank you for listening.